We continue worship now by looking to God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 29 through 36. Luke 29 through 36. Uh, and today's uh, sermon is entitled, The Sign of Jonah, from the Gospel of Luke. I'll read the text for us. As the crowds were increasing, he, that is Jesus, began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for speaking to us and giving us instruction and remind, revealing to us your truths and especially revealing to us truths about our Savior in whom we trust and whom we believe and whom we have our access to you. God, we, I ask, we ask that your Spirit would fill us, fill me, Lord, that, we would, that you would use me to deliver your message, that you would do a work in the hearts of your hearers so that they would receive your message. God, may we all live in accordance with your word. Help us not to be merely hearers of your word, but doers of it as well. Lord, cause us to examine our lives. Help us to take this not as an act of intellectual learning or instruction only, but Lord, that it would be an act of worship as we hear what you have to say and respond to it. Cause us, Lord, to grow in our uh, uh, a love for you, a love for one another. Help us to be sober-minded in these days that we would take seriously the words that Jesus speaks, that we would apply it to ourselves, that we would share it with others. Especially, Lord, help us to grow in our appreciation for the good news of the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These things we pray in His name. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, uh, these interesting words. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. And this kind of passage just reminds us that really people tend to fall into two general kinds of categories. There are two kinds of people. There are those who are basically convinced uh, whether things are true by supernatural manifestations, by, by signs, by a, something that, uh, a coincidence and manifestations of, of some powerful thing. And then there are those who are 
On the other hand, uh, not so much moved by, uh, by emotions or by signs and wonders, but those who are convinced by logical explanations from reason. Majority of us in the American culture are more of the latter, but some of us are, are like the former. The Jewish people, according to Paul, were characterized by the former. They, as a class of people, were, were those who looked for signs. They looked for miracles. They looked for things that would move them, that would impress upon them, that uh, from an emotional and, and kind of spiritual standpoint. They wanted signs and wonders in order to believe. Are you and I much different from the Jews or the Greeks of old? All of us probably in these days, of course, we're, we are easily influenced by reason, by logic. But there's also parts of aspects of our lives that we're, that we're like the Jewish people of old. Haven't there been times in your life where maybe you have wished for a sign from God? Did you long, Lord, if you would just show yourself to me, then I would believe. If you would do this, then I will know that this is what you want me to do. If, Lord, you open this particular way, then I know that for certain that's how I should proceed. All of us want signs. I know when I was a young man, particularly when it came to, uh, to thinking about dating other girls, I said, oh, Lord, if you want me to talk to that girl or date her, then, Lord, just somehow cause her to, to come across my path. You know, something like that. Or, oh, Lord, just something crazy like that. So maybe you, maybe that was just me. Nobody else did that in the world. But, hey, just think, if you ever did, uh, she loves me, she loves me not. Well, that's the same thing, right? She loves me, she loves me not. Same thing. Signs. Anyways, uh, enough silliness. Uh, all of us, in some way or other, are impressed by signs. But what does Jesus think about us asking for signs? Is it okay to do so? Is it something that's uh, just a neutral thing? Or is it something that's actually wrong? Something that is incorrect? Something that's an actual, really actual reflection of unbelief? We find out in today's passage. In Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 54, Jesus has been addressing the skepticism and rejection of his ministry. Jesus, in heading toward Jerusalem, uh, faces increasing rejection, especially among the religious leaders. On the occasion of an exorcism of a demon-possessed man, some in the crowd began to accuse him uh, of basically uh, <coughs> casting out demons by the power of Satan. Uh, and then while others, and that was back in verse 15, others, on the other hand, demanded of him instead a sign, uh, a sign from heaven. Then perhaps they wanted some, the heavens to open up and a voice to speak so that they would believe that uh, what he said, that they ought to believe in him. But Jesus, understanding the intentions of their hearts, addresses uh, their accusation of casting out demons by Beelzebub, by Satan, in verse 17 and 28. We looked at that last week. But this week we see that Jesus addresses the second issue, the demand of the crowds for a sign from him. And we will learn in this passage that asking for signs is ultimately a sign of unbelief. And instead of looking for a sign, those who hear or listen to Jesus' words should respond to the light of his word. We should respond to it. As Jesus addresses the demand for a sign, Jesus uses Two metaphors, one from Old Testament scripture, the other from everyday life. And as we look at these two metaphors in our passage today, they, will, they, are, they serve to prompt us, prompt the hearers 
of God's Word, or hearers of the teachings of Jesus, to receive the preaching and teaching and the truths of Jesus Christ. So uh, let's take a look at this uh, passage and we'll look at these two metaphors that Jesus uses to address the request and demand for signs. And hopefully they will encourage, just as they, he encouraged the, his listeners of his day, but that they would encourage us as listeners, listeners today to not just hear God's word and not respond to it or reject it or want more or, or, at, at, or seek for maybe more signs, but that simply we would hear and remember God's, his word and that we would be believers of it. We're obeying and heed it. All right. So let's take a look then at the first, uh, the first metaphor that Jesus uses. Jesus answered the demand of a sign first in verses 29 to 32 by the metaphor known as the, the sign of Jonah, the sign of Jonah. Verse 29 and 30, let's look at there with me. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Notice here, Luke tells us that the crowds were increasing. Perhaps they were increasing because the crowds were expecting Jesus somehow to perform a sign. People were demanding of it, continually demanding of it. And they were expecting, maybe Jesus is going to show us a sign. So the crowds begin increasing. They're gathering uh, there is, of course, also a sense of irony here that as the crowds increased, so and in looking for a sign, really it reflected also the increasing rejection of Jesus. They were not believing. They, they wanted a sign and, and to show them uh, that he was true before they would believe. Of course, it wasn't just religious leaders that had this skepticism or, or doubt. It was significant numbers in the crowds that were skeptical of Jesus and demanding of him a sign. Despite the the numerous miracles that Jesus had already performed, the crowd wanted a sign to prove that Jesus' message ought to be heeded. What will you do, Jesus, that we would listen to your word? Even having just cast out a demon from a mute man. And Jesus first begins by responding, by pointing out the wickedness of that generation, of that generation in his day. This generation refers to all the Israelites living in Jesus' day. In the Gospel of Luke, <clears throat> not only uh, has Jesus called them a wicked generation, but he's already called them elsewhere different things. He's called them a childlike, childish, and fickle generation in Luke 7.31. He's called them an unbelieving and perverted, that is, crooked generation in Luke 9.41. And so it just consistently, he's just recognizing that this generation is a sinful generation. It's a wicked generation, an evil generation. It, this word, by the way, is used later on in verse 34 and connects this, this uh, section with the next. Uh, there of the I being spoken of as bad, but in the Greek it's the same word. And so there's a connection between these two sections, which we'll draw out later. In any case, it is an evil generation, according to Jesus that is reflected in the demand for a sign. Their demand for a sign is a reflection of the wickedness that is in their heart. The present tense of the verb seeks, it's this, they seek for a sign, tells us that it wasn't just a, a one-time request. It was a continually ongoing demand of Jesus. Probably wherever Jesus went, the crowds were demanding of him, show us a sign, Jesus, show us a sign, and then we'll believe. Even though he performed many miracles, in Luke, there is a clear negative connotation to the seeking of signs. 
Now, all the way back in Luke chapter 1, verse 18, when the angel Gabriel appears to Zachariah and tells him this great promise that he would, he would have a son, even in his old age, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, oh, how will I know this to be true? How will I, because I'm old. He it reflected he didn't believe it. it was how, and he was really, in his essence, asking for a sign. And the penalty for that, of course, the angel caused him to be mute until the day that John the Baptist was born. What's more, in Luke chapter 4, verse 1 to 13, during this, in the, the temptations, Satan's temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, two out of the three of those temptations were, in effect, a request for Jesus to perform signs. Saying two, two times said, if you are the Son of God, then do this. Turn the stone to bread. Throw, your, throw yourself down from the pinnacle. In essence, Satan was saying, show us a sign. Show us that you really are the Son of God. But there in that same section, Jesus said that thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. Just as Jesus refused the testing of Satan, so he also refuses the, the request of the crowds, which were back uh, earlier identified as a test. They were testing Jesus. He knows that their request was evil. It is an evil request. Even if he were to perform a hundred more miracles, which he does in they would not believe in him. See, their unbelief wasn't really an intellectual or theological issue. It wasn't that they didn't uh, have enough information. They had plenty of information because Jesus, the Son of God, walked on earth and he conducted himself with holiness and he, conduct, and he performed countless miracles. And he spoke in a, such a manner that was quite different from all the teachers of, of this, of, uh, and religious leaders of that age. Really, the issue for all those who were doubting, who were skeptical, was really a moral one. It's because ultimately, deep down, there are sinners before a holy God. And in fact, all of us are. All of us are sinners before a holy God. But sadly, in our world today, people don't like to think that way. We don't like to think that we're, at the very heart, sinners before a holy God. We generally like to think of ourselves as deep down, we're, we're all just good people. We're good people. We're, we're good. Yes, yes, we sin. Yes, we sin here. We sin there. Oh, I have a little pride. Oh, I'm a little bit, oh, sometimes I told a little white lie. You know, we, we excuse ourselves in those, those kind of ways. Oh, I'm a little vain. But we're basically good. I, I really want to do good things. I, I want to help people. I, want to, I just want to just help my neighbors. We're good. And we think that way, especially because when we compare ourselves to the worst of humanity. Oh, we're not like Hitler. We're not like those mass murderers. Uh, we don't, we're, not, we're not like this, those greedy, uh, greed, super greedy people who are among the uber-rich that just live for themselves. But that's the problem, is that we're comparing ourselves with other human beings. We're comparing with the wrong standard. The true standard is God. And God is holy. And when we compare ourselves with a holy, holy, holy God, we are all guilty as sin. We must not allow an elevated view of ourself to get in the way of responding rightly to Jesus, as many people did. We must acknowledge that we are sinners before we can realize that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus indicates that the only sign, instead, and continuing on, that this wicked generation would receive is the sign of Jonah, he says. 
And he says that just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so would the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, traditionally, the sign of Jonah is understood to be the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's traditionally what has been held. But as uh, just kind of if you kind of hear maybe uh, or read commentaries, many of the more recent commentators have begun interpreting the sign of Jonah as something slightly different. The result is the same, that we should all listen to the words of Jesus. But the sign, it, they've interpreted the sign of Jesus as basically being the preaching of Jesus. Is the sign of Jonah, which refers to Jesus, is it really the preaching of Jesus? Ultimately, they would point out that, uh, <clears throat> that the next two verses speak of how the Queen of the South and the men of Nineveh responded to the, the wisdom and word of God, including uh, uh, the word of God that Jonah preached. And so, um, if we take this view, then basically Jesus is saying, uh, there's no, I'm not going to give you a sign, no sign for you. You have my word that has been preached, that is enough. That's my sign, the, my preaching, just as Jonah's preaching was enough. Now my preaching is enough. And there's arguably a simplicity to this interpretation. Uh, it, it seems to flow with that immediate context in that way. However, I want to give you five reasons why the traditional view is still the best interpretation. That the sign of Jonah is not just the preaching of Jesus. Certainly that's an aspect of who Jesus is, uh, his ministry. But the sign of Jonah is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Just as it was, Jonah was a, was a symbol in his death, in his, in his falling into the depths of the seas, and being swallowed up by a whale, and being in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, and then eventually coming out to go and preach uh, to the Ninevites. And uh, give me, let me give you five reasons. First of all, the word sign is, uh, refers to basically an attesting miracle. It's a miracle. It's supposed to be something that's supernatural. It attests to the, to, um, to something that is true. Preaching in the scriptures is nowhere else really considered a sign and wonder. If anything, the New Testament teaches that the signs and wonders serve to confirm the apostolic teaching and preaching of the word. Uh, see Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4 for that. In fact, a lot of times the scripture, uh, preaching of the word is in contrast to signs and wonders in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1 as well. It's, it's not as flashy as signs. In fact, it's quite humble. It's quite, it's quite the, in people's eyes, it's, it's quite weak. How is it then called a sign? Second, uh, the word, the sign here is said, Jesus, according to Jesus, is said to be Jonah and Jesus themselves. Not the preach, their preaching per se. It's something about them, what happens to them, not what they do. And uh, so what happens to Jonah and Jesus, of course, is that they both go down into the depths. Uh, Jesus particularly dies, and he's, he go, he's uh, buried in the grave, and he goes to, goes to Sheol, and then he's risen from the dead. That is the sign, really. Third, Jesus used, notice Jesus uses the future tense uh, when he says that he will be a sign to this generation. Just as Jonah was assigned to his generation of Ninevites, Jesus will be assigned. The Son of Man will be assigned to this generation. The sign then is still future as of Jesus' words at this point in the scriptures. Fourth, and I think the, the most powerful, of course, is the cross reference itself, the parallel passage in Matthew 12, verse 39 to 40. There it makes it quite clear that the sign is Jonah's three days in the belly of the big fish which, of course, correlate with the Son of Man being in the grave 
raised also. Matthew 12, 39-40. Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus, uh, the sign of Jonah is just as Jonah was in the grave for three days, three nights, in the depths, uh, so Jesus would also be in the grave for a period of three days and three nights. Fifthly, according to John chapter 2, verse 19, when the Jews asked Jesus for a sign of his authority on a, on a different occasion, which we read in our, our call to worship, Jesus essentially gives the same answer, his death and resurrection. John chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Whenever Jesus was asked for a sign from the crowds, from the people, from unbelieving people, he would also say that the sign, that the only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah, the sign of my death and resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus performed countless miracles. It's not that he didn't perform signs and wonders. He did. In the course of his three-year ministry, he performed countless many of them. He even raised people back from the dead. But when asked for that sign, he would only give his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. Of course, this is the heart of the gospel message. It's the, the, the heart of the message that Jesus came to proclaim. It is the basis for how anyone can be saved from their sins and enter into the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaimed. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 to 4, the Apostle Paul writes these words, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So then Jesus' response, Jesus, Jesus responses to those who ask for signs isn't, you have my word, that is enough. But instead it's, I will die and rise from the grave, and that makes my word enough for you. There are still many today, sadly, even among Christians, that are looking for signs and wonders. That our faith would not be able to stand, that we would not believe unless we saw more signs and wonders from Jesus or from God. But Jesus speaks to our wicked generation that his death and resurrection is enough for all to respond and re receive his teaching. Is it adequate enough for all to come to saving faith and follow after his words? What's more, Christ's death and resurrection mean a greater judgment upon those who don't put their trust in Jesus. We see this in verses 31 and 32. There, um, Luke continues to write over Jesus' words, The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation, and the judgment condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, she's a, a present-day Yemen Will tra has traveled from the ends of the earth, and she's going to one day in the day of judgment rise up and condemn that generation. Why? Because she went, came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon, the words of God, the wisdom which, come from God, which came from God. And she believed in that. She recognized, acknowledged it as of the Lord. And yet, Jesus is someone who is greater than Solomon. 
Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up with its generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Very likewise, the men of Nineveh are also going to rise up in the day of judgment. They're going to also condemn that wicked generation that seeks for signs because they, <clears throat> they were those who, uh, though they were under condemnation when Jonah appeared to them after having been in the belly of the fish for three days and started re- preaching to them, they heard that word, they responded to it, and great and small, they repented, and they, they <clears throat> believed in God's word, and, and they repented with fa- uh, fasting and sackcloth. And of course, now something greater than Jonah was here. Not just the prophet of the Lord, but the Lord himself. Not just the uh, one who received the wisdom of God, but wisdom itself was in their presence. And whereas when we think about Jonah, Jonah didn't actually die, but Jesus did, and he rose from the dead. Jesus is something greater than both the wisdom of Solomon and the preaching of Jonah. Those who rejected the words of Jesus, particularly even today, should know better. There's a warning for all of us here. In our day, we have more than just the wisdom of Solomon. We have more than just the preaching of Jonah. We have the completed canon of Scripture. We have God's Word revealed to mankind in its totality from the beginning of Genesis through Revelation. We have the four witnesses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of Jesus' life and ministry, all telling us, of attesting to us of the, the truths of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. We have the writings of the apostles and throughout, uh, from, from, <coughs> uh, from, yes, from Acts all the way to Revelation to tell us about the implications and the truths and doctrines of the significance of Christ's death and resurrection. We have a clear witness of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And if we do not heed these words in the day of judgment, the Queen of the South, the men of Nineveh, and countless others will rise up and condemn us. For we have rejected even more than the wicked generation in Jesus' day. In the next few verses, Jesus now will use a different metaphor. He moves on from the sign of Jonah Jonah to a different metaphor, a metaphor of light to prompt the listener to receive the teaching and preaching of of his ministry. And Jesus uses here in our second metaphor the the parable of the lamp, the parable of the lamp in verse 33 through 36. Jesus actually gives two short parables here, but both using the uh, metaphor of a lamp. And the first speaks to the truth that light is meant to be seen. Verse 33 of uh, Luke chapter 11. No one after lighting a lamp puts it away in the cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. Uh, <clears throat> I call this the parable of the lamp, of, or really the lamp of Jesus. Interesting, we We'd actually re- uh, seen this parable once before in the Gospel of Luke already, back in chapter 8, verse 16. There, uh, Jesus uses this parable in a slightly different context. 
but uses in that context the shows here as well as here shows us that Jesus would often repeat his teachings as he moved from place to place. Jesus was a teacher par excellence. He he knew how to re, to ex- use re- repetition and repeating many of the truths. And the more he would say it, the more it would sink in. Uh, and in Jesus' day, he uses the illustration of a, of a lamp. He lamps then were were small terracotta vessels with a lighted wick and oil inside. And they would light the wick and then they would burn the oil and that would be a lamp. It would produce light. And Jesus' parable states that obviously no one lights a lamp, you know, no light lights the wick and, and just simply to, to put it under a basket. You wouldn't do that. And, nor would you then take and put it in your cellar or uh, where no one can see it. People light lamps to put on a lampstand somewhere high so that that light then can shine and spread its light throughout the whole room so everyone can see the light. Lamps are meant to shine their light. That's the point of this parable. So that everyone may see it. And Jesus is referring here to his own preaching and teaching in light of our, the context of what he's, what he's already said before. And his preaching and teaching is meant to be seen and comprehended by those who hear his words they're to comprehend it. His teaching is light, and they are to, people, are to, people are to hear it and to see it and to receive it. Jesus' teaching is readily available in that generation for anyone to hear, and now in our generation, for anyone now to read or, or as well as to see or to hear. Jesus came to preach. That was his priority. It was the focus of his ministry to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel is meant to be heard. It's meant to be received. So what prevents some from responding to it? Jesus reveals the answer to what prevents people from responding to it in the next parable, verse 34 through 36. And call this the, the lamp of your body. Now let's contrast the lamp of Jesus, the lamp of your body. Verse 34. <clears throat> the eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Jesus now explains that one's eye is the lamp of your body. <laughs> so, and that it, and the eye, even today in our, we know that the eye is what allows light uh, from reflected off things outside in the world to reflect off things and then to come into our eyes, and then go into our, you know, our brains so we would process what is out there. But Jesus says that it's, the eye lets light into our body so that, so that it can fill us with understanding, with light from outside. So the important point is that what makes your whole body to be full of light or to see or makes your body full of darkness you don't see is dependent upon the condition of one's eye, one's lamp. When your eye is, is clear or healthy, light enters in. When your eye is bad, uh, or more literally here, when it's evil, and this is again our same word as back in, uh, early in the text of the wicked generation, when it's evil, when it's bad, then light doesn't enter in, and our body becomes full of dark, is full of darkness. Jesus is applying this to the spiritual truths of Christ. The eye is a metaphor for how one perceives or receives the teachings of Jesus Christ, the light of Christ. If our eyes are healthy, if it's clear, then the light of Christ will shine into our whole being. 
if our eye is evil or bad, if the condition of our, <clears throat> then if our eye is bad, then the light of Christ will not shine in and we will remain full of darkness and sin. <clears throat> See, responding to Jesus' teaching is the only way to be full of Jesus' light, to be full of the truths of Jesus, to be full of the attributes and characteristics of Jesus. <clears throat> And only in receiving Jesus or turning to Jesus in faith can we be filled with light. Turning to Jesus, in fact, in scriptures is described elsewhere as turning from darkness to light. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, when Paul preaches before King Agrippa, and uh, he recounted the words of Jesus spoken to uh, Paul on the, on the road to Damascus. He spoke of how the Lord Jesus had appointed him to be a minister to the Gentiles. In verse 18, he says, He appointed me to be a minister to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn uh, from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me, in Jesus, that is. In order to be saved, one must have their eyes opened, opened and clear so that they may turn away from the darkness and turn to the light of Jesus Christ. Turn away from the ways, the following after the God of this world, Satan, and turning after the, the, the Almighty God, God the Father, that we might receive forgiveness of sins and have eternal life. <clears throat> Paul's mission was to open eyes so that people may turn from darkness to light. And though he could preach, it all depended upon those who hears and their eyes, in a sense, their spiritual eyes, how they would respond and receive the message. Paul's mission involved the preaching of the gospel. So in the last two verses, Jesus calls his listeners to then check their own lives for how they have responded to the preaching and teaching of the truths, of his truths. Verse 35, Jesus continues, then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. Verse 35 is sort of the, is the key take home of this passage is the exhortation that Jesus gives the crowd. It's the, it's the so what at the end of his message. And it's the so what for you and me. The challenge of his words is then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. It is the only time in all of Jesus' response to the crowds here where he uses the imperative, uses the command. He tells the people to watch out, pay attention to this. The Greek word is, we get the word scope from it. So put a scope on it, whether it's a telescope, microscope, Take a good look at it. Focus on your eye, your attention upon it. Notice Jesus doesn't say, check just your eye. He meant to make sure your eye is okay. He says, check yourself. Make sure that, watch out the light in you, your whole body, your whole life. And he wants to make sure, he says, is there light inside or is there darkness inside? What characterizes your life? Is it light or darkness? Notice, by the way, how Jesus puts it quite a little, 
quite oddly in effect. He says, watch out that the light in you is not darkness. He doesn't just simply say, watch out that there's not darkness in you. Or watch out that there's light in you instead of darkness. He says, watch out that the light in you is not darkness. It's an awareness that Jesus has of the heart of people. He knows that among his listeners out there, that especially some of those who were self-righteous, they thought that their lives were actually full of light, when in reality, their light was not light. In reality, it was darkness inside of them. They were mistaken. Jesus understands people. We are beasts, just like how many of us think, even though we're sinners, that basically we're good. No, we're not good. Not one is good. And so in their day, many people, a lot of the religious people thought, oh, I'm, I'm full of light, when in reality they were full of darkness. And the same may happen for you and me today. We may sit here weekly or listening to the Word of God and worshiping the Lord, and to everyone else, it may look like we are God-fearing worshipers. You're only seeing us for an hour, an hour and a half each Sunday. But whether you've actually been receiving and listening to the Word of God in taking it is seen in the life you live. Does your life reflect the teachings and truths of Jesus, our Savior and Lord? Let me make it even simpler. If we could summarize all his teaching, Jesus summarized it for us. Summarized it as two commands, to love God and love your neighbor. So how does your love life reflect a love for God and a love for your neighbor? It's one thing to say that you love God or, or you love your neighbor, but how does this show in your life? To the extent that it does is a reflection of your response to the teachings of Jesus and how well you've received his word. Verse 36 tells us that what's more, if you've responded rightly to the teachings of Jesus, then your whole body will be full of light. You'll see it, that light, in your, reflected in your life. And what's true of the lamp of Jesus back in verse 32 is also true of you. Excuse me, 33. That your light, just as the light of Jesus, is meant to shine and be seen. If the light of Jesus is in you, you will then shine that light, light for others. You'll be wholly illumined and it will, it will shine, it will be full of light and it will, it will shine so that others can see. You will tell others of Jesus. You will show them the love of Christ. You will show, them, show your love for God through your service and your way you live for His glory and for His name. But for all of us, it begins with how you and I respond to the light of Jesus, to the light of His truths, proclaimed and, record, proclaimed and recorded in His Word for us today. These two metaphors that, Luke, that Jesus responds with to the crowds who are demanding a sign are the same answers that He continues to give to people today to those who are skeptical, those who are critical, those who want more from Jesus, those who will need to, need, uh, need to see some sign from Jesus, need to have more evidence, Jesus would say to you that the evidence that you need 
is recorded right here in his book. It is the evidence of the testimony that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And Jesus descended into the depths of Sheol. And in three days and three nights. And then he rose from the dead, rose from the grave, came back to life, and eventually ascended back to the Father. He was seen by many. This was clear, clearly testified by in the scriptures. And this is all the sign that you need. The real question is, are you going to believe it? Are you going to put your trust and faith in what is recorded or not? Remember the Queen of Sheba? Remember the men of Nineveh? They responded to the wisdom of Solomon and the preaching of Jonah. And yet, in Jesus, something, someone greater is here. The judgment will be great for all who reject the good news of Jesus Christ. Let us not be that. If you're not a believer yet, I would implore you and I invite you that the first response that you need to make, if you're ready, you believe what we've been saying about Jesus, His death and His resurrection, you believe in this sign, you, you come to see that this is true, then the first response is a response of repentance and faith. Jesus came to die in place of sinners so that we may have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And when Jesus began his ministry, according to Mark 1.15, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so the challenge for you, if you're not yet a believer, is to repent. That is to turn away from your sin, to acknowledge that you're a sinner, and turn in faith, believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for your sins. Will you do that today? Respond and receive him today. This is a free offer from Jesus to you that you might know Him, know the Father, know eternal life, know a hope that can never be taken away through faith in Jesus Christ, our King and our Savior. Now, for those of you who are already professing believers, then your response ought to be to continue to keep receiving and responding to His Word in one way, we just simply ask this practical thing. Is this simply I challenge you? Is your life a word-saturated life? Is your word life reflect the one who has been in God's word? And not just that you can quote God's word, but that you live God's word. That is the challenge for all of us. Colossians 3, 16 and 17, I'll leave, end with this quote, describes a, such a word-saturated life. The Apostle Paul writes, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Brothers and sisters, this is what a word-saturated life looks like. This is what a life looks like that continually responds to the word of God, receives it, heeds it, obeys it, keeps it. We will inevitably begin with teaching and instructing, counseling others with God's word. 
will, will respond with, with praise of God, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We'll, we'll sing praise to Jesus because, and to God because we know that the teaching and that we do to one another is not from ourselves, but it's from God who, made it, who opened our eyes to see. We will sing with thankfulness to God. We'll worship Him. A word sat your life will also be, according to verse 17, one who does all for the glory of God. That we live not for ourselves, but whatever we do, in word or we do, we do for the Lord Jesus. We live for the glory of Jesus Christ. We give thanks to Him, uh, through Him, to God the Father because of the salvation that we have in Christ. And therefore, our lives really don't belong to ourselves. We live for Jesus. So let's, brothers and sisters, respond to God's word today and let's be people who make sure we receive God's word but let's make sure that our lives when we go out there we live it for Jesus we live it for his glory amen brothers and sisters well let us pray father in heaven we thank you for your word and thank you for these truths thank you for the challenge that Jesus gives to us and those sobering words to us lord uh, they're not words to really kind of scratch our scratch an itch for us they're words that really challenge us to in our faces Yet, Lord, we pray that we would be people who don't take offense when our Lord speaks to us, even in a strong way, but that we would know that our Lord loves us and His Word is given and recorded for us for our good. And so, Father, we pray that first and foremost we would respond to Your Word rightly. Thank You, Lord, for making it clear that the, <clears throat> that the sign of Jonah is all that we need that the powerful testimony of the death and resurrection of your Son for our sins is enough. It is the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And Father, I pray that this message would sink into the hearts of those who are listening to who don't know you yet. That, you, Lord, you would cause their eyes to be open. You cause it to be, to be clear so they would see and respond to the light of the gospel and believe and repent. Father, we pray that your people that have been hearing your word worshiping you would be people too that would examine our own lives to make sure, the Lord, that the light that we think is in us is truly light and not darkness. Help us, Lord, to check our lives to make sure that our lives reflect Jesus Christ. Lord, we know none of us are perfect. None of us are without sin. But Father, we pray that as we are men and women who are saturated with your word, that we would then begin to, to shine your word to others. Through the words that we speak, through the lives that we live, that we would love you, that we would love others, and that we would be a testimony of Christ. Lord, use us this week as we go forth into our world to be a testimony and a light of Christ, that the light that He's shined in our beings would be the light that would shine forth into our world. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. Guard us from unbelief. Guard us from falling into temptation of sin. And help us to be men and women of light. Thank you, God, for this time and your word. Please watch over us as we go forth into our our, our world, use us this week, even in the small ways, and when we can get out into our community, we may have interaction with our neighbors or our, uh, our, uh, um, our doctors or nurses, or maybe when we go out to our workplaces or go out to our schools or classmates, 
our our, our fellow uh, fellow um, uh, parents. Perhaps as we go out into interacting with our our grocery clerks and some of the essential businesses out there, Lord, that you would cause us to uh, be people who reflect your light. Lord, we ask that you would watch over uh, your church, build your church. We pray, and Lord, until you dis- you we, until you uh, will to remove this uh, the and, this coronavirus pandemic, Lord, cause your church to keep trusting in you, to people who keep listening and focusing upon your word. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you, uh, brothers and sisters out there. Uh, please go forth into the world and, and bring glory to God. Uh, thank you for joining us this uh, Sunday uh, morning as you worship the Lord. Uh, may you have a wonderful time with your family. And uh, 